Hi guys, and welcome back for another episode of Beyond Body. I am very excited to bring you today's episode because I just got off the call with our guest today and have been left feeling so uplifted and so hopeful that I'm confident you will take away the same sort of feeling from our chat today. We are speaking to the man, the myth, the legend, the self-titled chubby king, Patrick Boyle, who is an eating disorder recovery advocate here in Sydney, who is currently going through his own recovery process and sharing it on social media. He did this most notably by winning a billboard competition where he could design his own billboard and have it placed above a very busy road in Sydney, Parramatta Road. And he took the opportunity to use this to promote the very important message that disordered eating affects all kinds of people. Did it with his top off, sitting on a chair with a very simple straight to the point message. And when I saw the Butterfly Foundation share that post, I was like, this is a person I need to speak to. (laughs) And you'll really hear Patrick's amazing brand of humor coming through as we discuss some really serious topics like his own personal recovery, his eating disorder history, how being part of the LGBT community and particularly the LGBT community online, how those things have had both negative and positive impacts on his process. And just his overall presence is a really amazing contribution to the eating disorder recovery landscape because there can be a lot of darkness and a lot of very, very overwhelming, serious topical stuff that's flying around the community a lot. And a lot of, you know, uh, sadness and pain and hard work. And we can really lose sight on, of the fact that recovery can be an amazing, transformative, joyful process. And one that we can have a sense of humor about from time to time when it's helpful. And Patrick really delivers in that department for sure. So I hope that you enjoy our chat in this episode. Go and show Patrick some love. You'll find his details in the description box of this episode episode and yeah just hope that you get as much out of this chat as I did so Patrick thank you so much for agreeing to have a chat with us today on the beyond body podcast I really was uh, keen to get you on since we met through a butterfly campaign and then we were jointly doing a bit of media about body image spaces and body image research that's undergoing here in Australia at the moment because the way that you speak about your experience, I think would be really, really relevant to a lot of people. Uh, Do you mind giving us a little bit of background about your experiences with eating and bodies and all that fun stuff that we talk about in this arena? What's your personal history in this area of eating disorders and awareness? I'd be very happy to share my story. Um, It's been like a lot of people, it's been my entire life, um, at least for as long as I can remember. I um, have been obsessed with my body and hating my body and my relationship to food uh, ever since I was, yeah, I think back to 10, 11, 12 years old, um, being an overweight teenager um, by, you know, the metrics that they hand down BMI-wise whatever overweight actually means. Um, yeah, ever since then, I, I spent my whole teenage years uh, obsessing with my body and uh, ultimately 
started uh, restricting my diet around 17, 18, and really went down a, a dark rabbit hole. And uh, this is what I talk about quite a lot at that period of my life. I went away traveling for a year, came back and had lost a, oh my, my body had changed a lot in that time. Um, and everyone in my hometown uh, of Port Macquarie, mid North coast, New South Wales, shout out uh, <laughs> everyone uh particularly friends from high school when i came back everyone just showered me with praise uh and commented on this dramatic weight loss uh in a way that just validated all these things uh that had been stewing in my brain that that was the problem that um my body was the problem that uh okay i was unlovable before Sure. Now I guess I've fixed it. I better keep this up. I better keep going. Mm -hmm. Can't finish now. Um, and yeah, just kept up this uh, these really unhealthy um, eating and exercising patterns and behaviors, and pretty much did that my whole early twenties. And I came out in in that time as a queer person, and then entered this community where that's even more exacerbated. Um, or maybe in a, in a different way to um, the hetero community, mm -hmm. to, the, to the wider world. Um, and when I came out, I entered this community that, uh, well, parts of the gay male community specifically, uh, body shaming is just so rife and uh, the way that people talk about their own bodies and other people's bodies, friends or strangers' bodies, uh, can be really toxic and really problematic and it's just so normalized. Um, and that only served to enable my disordered eating even further. And this whole time I didn't know that anything was wrong. I didn't think that, um, my anxiety around my body was anything, uh, out of the norm. In fact, you know, it's, it's so tied up with shame and guilt. Um, and self-loathing, you know, I just actually thought that it's right that I feel this way. Like this is, I should deserve to feel that way about myself. And that just pretty much uh, <laughs> uh, categorized, characterized my whole early 20s. Yeah, I came to this tipping point where I realized that when I was dramatically underweight, I was uh, really unhappy about my body. And now that uh, my body had changed again and maybe I was overweight according to that same BMI BS, uh, I was still unhappy. So rather than trying to um, punish myself and destroy my body and do all that stuff in the process of trying to get back to what I was when I was 18, I actually had to start thinking about uh, working on me noggin and uh, my mental health and I mean, I didn't, I didn't have that clear of an idea of what I was, what I wanted to do, what self-work I needed to do when I first saw a psychologist, but I knew that the way I, I was thinking was not great and I needed to do something about it. Mm -hmm. So in those formative years, pre uh, the period where you went away and there was a, you know, a physical change that was noticed and really complimented and praised. Mm. Do you remember what the main contributors were to you leading up to 17, 18 actively saying, I've got to, I've got to change my body. I've got to in, in 
engage with restrictive eating to change the shape of, shape of my body? What were those influences that were telling you what bodies should look like and brought attention to your body? Was it peer stuff? Was it comparing yourself to images that you saw? Were you, was social media a thing at that age? So I was old school. We've got to go looking for our bad body image influences. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but above that uh, age bracket where social media was really the big influence. So what do you think were the big contributors to you becoming alert and aware and so hyper-focused on your body? Yeah, in those early teen years, I'm also pretty lucky. I was on the very tail end of the generation before full-blown social media. Um, you know, for me, it was a Facebook feed with my school friends who I'd seen a few hours beforehand, not scrolling through Instagram and comparing your friends' lives to celebrities' lives, which is, yeah, I'm, I'm very glad that I skipped that generation. Um, yeah. yeah. But for me, I think it was a lot of innocuous comments um, from mates, family, teachers, and not, not so much my, my close family, my parents and my sister, um, extended family, definitely thing. And also I just grew up in a town where Port Macquarie is a beach town and, um, the active fit surfy tanned aesthetic, um, kind of was the norm even though so many people there uh certainly when i was growing up it didn't fit that mold um there's a celebration of uh, a specific kind of body and a specific uh, type of lifestyle so i think because i didn't fit that mold uh i always felt uh something of a failure in some way um and then, of course, the more that you think about your body and feel shame around your body in public spaces, the less you actually engage in those public spaces. And I became, um, although I'm, I was always a very um, social being uh, and had an active social life and lots of lovely friends, I certainly um, was a homebody because I think, looking back, a big part of that was that I like I hated to go. I, I lived in a beautiful beach town and I couldn't think of anything worse than going to the beach and feeling um, feeling that vulnerable and visible in front of people when I was so unhappy with my body. Um, yeah. And yeah, that just compounds. Yeah. And I think that when we frame the body image part of the eating disorder experience conversation, people are really quick to defend like this isn't about vanity and it's not about superficiality and I, I really don't believe that at its core it is it but it is about belonging and if especially at a young age you're having comments made about you that make you feel like you don't belong and that something even remotely negative is being said about you that makes you different from other people then it's a very natural thing especially in those formative teenage years where belonging is priority number one it feels like well it is in some cases survival mm. and you'll do what you can to avoid being told or it being insinuated that you might be different so as much as it's it comes back to the appearance it's really trying to avoid feeling and being and being called out for being different yeah and uh it's not just the comments from external sources i know that i assumed this role of funny fat guy in my high school years and the things you say about yourself um 
for laughs or for, yeah, to protect yourself and for survival come from a dark, can often come from a dark place. And even if they don't, you can internalize those things and believe the things you're saying. Or if people, um, you know, laugh, then they're just validating the thing in your brain that's, you know, saying this joke is actually rooted in fact. Yes. It's, it's, if you hear something enough, we know that even if it's untrue, categorically, objectively false, if you hear something enough, your brain starts to interpret it as fact. So if your body and your self-worth is the chatter that's going on in your head pretty constantly, then you're hearing it enough that even just by repetition, you'll start to believe it. Yep. You brainwash yourself. It can happen. And then you can brainwash yourself out of it. (laughs) (laughs) That's the more fun brainwashing. That's right. It takes a bit of work, but it's a good mechanism. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned that then your body had gone through this physical change with, you know, this period of weight loss and all of these comments that you're on the receiving end of. What was the impact? How did it feel to have people suddenly saying all the things that you wanted to hear? What did it feel like to be on the receiving end of that affirmation and validation? What was kind of your internal response to that? I think, um, you know, no one's ever asked me that before. I think it's a bit of a double-edged sword. It's a bit euphoric and you're a little bit, um, you know, you're getting off on this thing that, yes, I did it now. Now they, now they recognize it. They recognize all my hard work. Um, but then there's also the anxiety of like, okay, how do I keep this up? How do I, uh, how, how can I keep on going? Obviously I have more work to do. Um, so yeah, it was, it, it's never enough. I think mm-hmm. it's, there's, there's no amount of validation, uh, when you're in that headspace, that is enough. There's something more to strive for. There's more punishment that you can inflict on your body. Um, when you start going down that rabbit hole, um, and certainly no one at any point, um, at that point in my life, Asked like, are you okay? Like, oh, hey, like, wh- what are you, what are you doing to achieve this weight loss? Like, are you doing this in a healthy way? Mm-hmm. Like, tell us about it. You know, we're happy for you if you're happy, but are you happy? Yeah. Yes. Exactly. And I, you so I think the way you put it is really beautiful because there is an addictive quality to it, but it's this catch twenty two of, I got here, I'm being recognised for getting here, and now that I have this measure of, uh acceptance and celebration i have to fight to keep it and i have Mm. to sort of continue to pursue what i'm doing to have more of it you know uh, directed towards me because if you don't believe it yourself if you don't affirm yourself and you and your self-esteem is not terribly high as mine was it's like filling a black hole it's like it sticks to the sides for a second and then it's gone and then you need more of it and more of it whereas if you have a a way of speaking to yourself, which affirms you and is kind to you and other people affirm you and are kind to you. It's kind of like, Oh yeah, that, that hits something It kind of connects. But if there's nothing, it's like magnets. If it's not there to connect with it's, it's uh, something it recognizes, then it just kind of slides off. It's like Teflon. Yeah. Right. No, I agree. And I, yeah, I, I really now recognize that the, the further away you have to go to search for love, uh, the, the less powerful it is and the less sustained power there is. Um, but when it's something that you can actually practice 
within yourself, um, self-love baby, mm-hmm. you can, you can always tap into that resource. Um, good days, bad days, social days or days at home on zoom or, uh, yeah, that is something that can perpetuate hopefully for your whole life. Yeah. Cause you have to be your number one, not you're, you're not always going to be your number one fan. Like I've got to kick my own butt sometimes. You're mm-hmm. like, yeah, get up and do the dishes. You are, <laughs> you are putting those off and they're starting to grow things. Get up, go and do mm-hmm. it. But that's also <laughs> self-love, right? We don't want to be, we don't want to be dying of salmonella in our own kitchen. Um, but it is your number one resource when it comes to, you know, when you need help and guidance and you need some affirmation, if you have yourself to turn to first and everyone just gets to become backup, right? They help you to make sure that you're not straying too far from that self-affirming place that you can reach through recovery and it helps kind of guide you back. Right. Yeah. And the the more that you actually can practice that, then the more um, of a cheerleader you can be for your, the other people in your life. Like, you can actually support people uh, and nurture your relationships, friendships, romantic relationships, family, what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, I find that I'm actually able to be a real support to uh, people now because I, I'm not trying to uh, on any level get something for them or I don't need something from them um, in order to do that or in order to just function. Well said. And what you touched on earlier, I think is a very important thing for people to understand in the eating disorder recovery process. And sort of, as you are trying to, uh, you know, not necessarily that body image can be fixed, but we can certainly, uh, we can certainly find ways to be tolerant and respectful and, you know, kinder to our bodies. And a big part of that is letting go of the worth that we're attaching to our appearance and that is so difficult when you're in an environment where you are constantly being told that your worth to some degree is in your appearance and how dangerous it is for people to just give out freewheeling quote-unquote compliments or feedback about people's appearance and particularly their weight just just overtly and immediately celebrating weight loss or demonizing and you know raising questions of concern if there's weight gain to think that it's that simple is really undermining how impactful that can be for somebody with an eating disorder that you know you don't know what you're celebrating you don't know what you're commenting on and you could be giving somebody that next bit of boost to you know restrict that little bit longer or use a behavior so as you became more and more aware that this way of thinking and behaving was so far from serving you and so far from positive for you, what were the main things that you started to pick up on where you were like, something is not right here? Like maybe everyone doesn't talk to themselves like this. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, when it got um, quite bad for me again a few years ago, uh, after a, a weight gain, uh, I, my mood and my like ability to socialize, uh, really went out the window and I, I keep on lately. I've been thinking a lot about the amount of times I have spent at the pub with close friends of mine. This is when I was living in Melbourne. Uh, the amount of times I spent at the pub dreading going to the pub because that's a space where I'm going to be stressing about what I'm consuming. 
and already dreading what that'll mean for the next few days and how I'm going to punish myself. And when I'm there, not being able to enjoy the presence, not being there for my friends, again, not being able to be a good support and not even being very good company, uh, I, I would say, um, not like at least my usual fabulous level of company that I provide. Um, yeah, I've been looking back on that period and it's just blowing my mind how, uh, how absent I was for so many of these so many of these social occasions and so many events in my life where I was, I was totally elsewhere. Uh, and yeah, I'm talking around your question and now I've even forgotten the question, but no, because it's, it's so, I completely resonate with that. I, I referred to myself as a Stepford wife. Like I became yeah. like, beep boop, what would you like me to say? And I will be kind to you and compliment you and, you know, laugh in all the right places. And that is not my nature naturally <laughs> at all. Yeah. I didn't have an opinion to offer. I wanted to be as inoffensive as possible, but it was also that my energy was so depleted by my behaviors and how I interacted with food and also just the chatter that was always in my head that yes. it's like trying to listen to your loved ones. And then you've also got headphones in and you're listening to like an audio book on midway volume. Right. So yeah. What did that sound like for you when you talk about, you know, there were things that were happening in my head or, you know, ways that I spoke to myself that didn't start to feel normal. Do you remember what that sounded like for you? Was it militant? Was it instructive? Was it abusive? What was its kind of tone? What personality did it feel like it had? I would say it was, it was, it was probably, um, oh, hateful is a, it's a strong word, but there was maybe worthlessness is probably, um, is is the best way to describe it this uh not a voice but a general white noise um reminding me of my worthlessness and uh you know things about willpower and we know that willpower has nothing to do with anything um when it comes to disordered eating all this stuff about yeah you're a failure like uh how, how dare you think you deserve this pint of beer and to be having a fun time with your friends you know you should be at home and isolating uh, from the world because you are not worthy of love. Um, that's, that's probably the, that's probably the, the tone <laughs> that my, uh, yeah, my white noise was tuned into. Yeah. And it is just exhausting. It's, it's chatter is a really good way to describe it. I think it's just this endless chitter chatter in your brain that makes it really hard for you to hear anything else or to really listen to anything else. Uh, yeah. Especially when, other stress factors in your life get um, hectic and work is going down the toilet or relationships are blowing up, uh, then that's, it makes it harder to actually cope with those real world situations when you have this added just layer of bullshit. Am I allowed to say bullshit? Sure Oh, great. Because it's so much harder to deal with anything when you are listening to your own bullshit all mm -hmm. the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that it's a matter of getting into what it, what purpose it's trying to serve. Because it's, so, it's, it's so similar to my story in that I would isolate and I would isolate for lengths of time with the, with the goal of getting myself to a place where I would feel comfortable and confident <laughs> and happy to go and spend time with my friends yeah. and feel lovable. And here's all these people saying, 
can you come and spend time with us? We miss you. Like, come for dinner. Can I come over? We'll watch a movie. I'm like, no, no, no. I, I'm in this period of isolation so I can be good enough for people to love me and want to spend time with me. So it's this great irony that we have people who are, who are there to love us and accept us as we are and we're busy trying to be what we think we should be for them to love and accept us. And it's like, it's already there. You just can't match up that you feel deserving of that. Yeah, I know. It's it's borderline hilarious, but mostly tragic. It's it's tragic. tragic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Good enough time. What is what is um humor? It's tragic plus time equals comedy or something like that. <laughs> Give yeah, it enough time. Exactly yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so once you had that sort of realization, that that light bulb moment, which I know they're never instant, but over time realizing that maybe it didn't have to be like this life didn't have to be like this your relationship with food and your body and you know what it was like to live in your head didn't have to continue on that way what did that look like for you what did forging ahead in recovery and taking steps to getting help what did that look like for you yeah as i talked about a little bit i started seeing a psychologist which was um i mean for so many people that's a turning point in their lives and we're lucky to uh, be able to have a mental health care plan got my 20 rebates um so lucky to have that resource here um but also i think the most uh, empowering thing for me has been or was when i was first unpacking all this was sh- uh sharing with close friends what i was going through and i remember one uh, night out for drinks. I'm certainly talking about uh, going out for drinks a lot uh, today, <laughs> but you it's know, a lot a of tough, it's been a tough couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been a tough 20 years, man. Right. <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, I remember this one night where I, uh, this small company I worked for in Melbourne, it was a, like a lovely little family. Um, I started opening and I've been talking to my therapist about this for the first time. I, I guess for the first time I'd ever really talked to anyone properly about it and must have had therapy that day in the middle of the work day. Then we went for drinks and it all just kind of kept on pouring out of me at the pub um, with my boss, who's a good friend or my former boss, who's a good friend of mine and oh, our, our little work family. And it, it like the, the shock and the, the pain on their faces when I was talking about this, um, was so surprising because in my mind, I'm like, oh, this is like, of course I don't love myself, guys. What, do you, what are you on about? Like, what, what is surprising to you about the fact that I don't love myself? And of course, you know, they were nothing but supportive. And it's, I've, I've been writing a lot about how this is kind of a second coming out for me and divulging my story before I start talking about it publicly, but sharing that with my close friends my close work family, um, my literal family. It's, it, it, it's just un, like taking that facade away, being vulnerable with those people who are the support network in your life and for whom you are a support has just made everything so much easier. Like I can really just, ah, oh, it's, it's, yeah, that's why it's a second coming out. I just feel like I can be more my authentic self and have real conversations and just let the, let the bullshit, let that all uh, fall to the wayside and get, get real, get to living, baby. 
Yeah, because it's such a, I, I think that eating disorders have different roles for different people. For me, it really was protecting me from having to be vulnerable and it was protecting me from having to talk about things I didn't want to talk about or didn't have the capacity to talk about. And it kind of locked a bunch of doors between me and all those things, but it also locked doors between me and the people around me. So to have that ability to be so vulnerable and so open about something that is so personal, like an eating disorder, it's kind of like, well, we're in the deep end. Let's keep going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now that we've got that out of the way, we can get to the, the real stuff. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. But you know, it takes a lot of courage to do it because even the people who love us, they don't necessarily have the understanding that, you know, uh, sometimes we need to be able to safely and comfortably share these things because it, it is just such a misunderstood illness, right? Yeah. So what, uh, what's sort of your current process? And I'd love for you to touch on how you've been speaking about your recovery and your eating disorder experience publicly, which I know you've only recently been doing, but it's helping so many people. Um, and that part of that story of talking about these things publicly is uh, actually one of my favorite metaphors, which is I tell people, it's okay, you don't have to put it on a billboard. And then Patrick, what did you go and do? You went and put it on a bloody billboard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I got pretty literal with that. Yeah, this all started um, August last year, 2020. Uh, coming out of COVID, had come out of a, a fabulous little depressive episode in the depths of COVID um, and was reconnecting with the world, uh, had moved back to Sydney around close friends again, was feeling well supported. Um, and I actually started a, a, a new fitness um, I was going to use regime, but that's literally the opposite of what I'm creating. Mm -hmm. I, I engage in this new uh, social fitness adventure. Um, and it's, it's been part of me redefining my relationship to fitness. Um, never using the word exercise again. I hate the word exercise and thinking about it as if it's uh, remotely related to changing my body. But um, yeah, join this like fun weightlifting um, focused gym where you know, bodies of all shapes and sizes uh, are all having fun, seeing each other like a couple of days a week. Um, and in that space, I was kind of talking about my uh, disordered eating and uh, especially because I was working through a diagnosis last year and the amount of people uh, at the gym who I, you know, I still have stereotypes of what, um, a body with an eating disorder would look like the people who I was talking to about this were blowing my mind and making me, yeah, making me understand a sense of community around that. And so I just, it, it became this like, uh, yeah, this snowball of me talking to more and more people about it and me thinking like, how the hell have I gone the last 10, 20 years of my life uh, thinking that I'm so alone in this when actually this experience is so commonplace. Um, and so then I just started bitching about it on my Instagram, started calling out, especially like the toxicity of uh, gay Instagram. Specifically. Mm -hmm. um, and then it was again, like friends and old coworkers and people who I've had like lovely periods of my life with, but haven't seen in a long time, reach out and being like, 
babe, we were beside each other for years, not knowing that we we're both going through the same thing. And then it started being strangers reaching out and sharing their story with me. Um, so it's just kind of snowballed. Um, and I'd be interested to hear if you have a similar sort of uh, experience, but came to this point where I'm like, oh, okay, well, um, maybe I should just like dedicate some of my life to doing this and thinking about this. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not a doctor or a psychologist or uh, a, a, a wellness expert or anything, um, but have found, uh, have found the empowerment that comes with sharing your story, um, especially knowing the effect that it can have on people who you may or may not know, like the, 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 the lovely things that people have sent me and people who've started their own journey with coming to understand this because they've seen that I won a random billboard where I took my top off and put a billboard of me on Parramatta road. So awesome. <laughs> started that conversation for them, which is so ridiculous and so great. Um, awesome. So the billboard yeah. is you shirtless sitting on a chair sitting on a chair and what's the text on the billboard the text says uh disordered eating comes in all shapes and sizes let's normalize that conversation love it um in hindsight i would have done a better photo shoot had i have <laughs> thought about this this is me and my mate like rolling around in my living room after a few glasses of wine taking these photos <laughs> And see it on the board, we were both like, oh, God, we shouldn't have used an iPhone like eight <laughs> to take it. <laughs> but you know what? Oh, I, I'm, I'm not your average uh, uh, Australian media personality. I'm, I'm doing this, doing this uh, my own way. Well, look at how much they just spent on the consent videos and that was a shit show. So an iPhone and straight to the point on a billboard on Parramatta Road. I mean, it's goodbye, Scotty from marketing. This is the way to do it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Patty from marketing now. That's it. Move <laughs> over. I thought it was so, so I sort of saw it through Butterfly. Butterfly shared it and I clicked through to your account and then found out we we're going to be doing this campaign together. And I thought, what a great opportunity to be able to connect and do something like this because I didn't realize that your journey and sort of speaking publicly about it had been, you know, only just recent along with this billboard. And I just thought, oh my gosh, wow, what a great example of how, you know, even through the process we can make, we can take more from the eating disorder than it takes from us, right? Like we, mm. We reveal it, expose it, and then in doing that, we bring other people along and get them out of the situation. I always think about it like deprogramming from a cult. That's what it feels like, well, it felt yes. like to recover for me. It's why I obsess about cult documentaries because I'm like, I get this. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I understand this. Um, I didn't give like too much money and, you know, uh, I didn't have to wear orange robes or anything, but it was still very much an indoctrination of my own making. Mm. It, I, I totally agree with you that having that realization that, you know, your lived experience can make a difference is really, really liberating. It's kind of not staying stuck, isolated in the shadows with the eating disorder anymore. It's like, it's out there. People know I'm talking about it. I can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. I'm doing this thing. Yes. Right? And it, describing it as deep programming from a cult is so apt. It's, it really 
is is like looking at the world through a new lens and also uh i mean i i i really get off on laughing at myself and my old uh patterns of thinking and being like how ridiculous the amount of effort and time and pain i've spent thinking about this and find freedom and just like laughing at myself and being like you silly bitch like don't <laughs> worry it's all better now not all better but pretty better yeah and we'll take my, this oh my lovely therapist barbara shout out to barbara um she said the other day we were, and we laugh about this all the time um we, we do a lot of laughing me and barbs but uh she was just like do you want to be on your deathbed and looking back and thinking you spent the last 85 years of your life uh, worrying about the amount of calories in that beer you just drank. Why would you want to do that? Because it's just so boring and you're not a boring person, but that's the most boring life you could possibly imagine. I'm like, yeah, that's really boring. Mm. And And I'm not boring. It's not realistic. Like when I went to therapy and it's part of why I became a coach because it was all the practical stuff that really helped me. It was some of the kick up the butt stuff that helped me, which was, okay, yeah, you can want to be in this body. You've now tried to do that. It was terrible. (laughs) Uh, And it didn't solve any of the problems that it said that it would. And when you get to the end of your hopefully long life and your grandkid runs up to you with a photo of you at 24 and says, you know, Graham, what were you doing? And oh my gosh, who are you with? Do you want to not remember anything other than the calculating and the beating yourself up and the, I wish that I wasn't here with my friends because, you know, this is going to mean I'll have to do X, Y, Z tomorrow. And I remember my psychologist saying that to me and just thinking, oh my God, that that's it. That's what every day of this adds up to. It just mm-hmm. feels like a day or the next week or the next month, but it never ends unless you make a decision that it's going to end and you're going to work on getting out of it. It's not just going to go away. You will be looking at a photo, maybe not with grandchildren around because maybe eating disorder has taken away that possibility. And there is no reflection on the happy times because you weren't, you were there, but you weren't really there. Yeah, you, you weren't actually uh, enjoying that night at your best friend's wedding because you were too concerned about the impending meal. Like, yeah, it's 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 the the, the earlier that people um, who have eating disorders or experience really tough body image issues, the earlier that they can start working, and we can all start working on that the sooner you can get to the actual living. And, you know, like, I mean, you, you just don't want to realize these things when you're 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100, because you are going to look back and think about all those times that yeah. you've been spending all your emotional energy on something that doesn't serve you and doesn't make you happy. Yeah, I went, absolutely. I went to Rome, Marrakesh. Where else did I go? Par- Paris? I can't re- see. I can't remember. Yeah. And I can't remember... <laughs> much of it other than my steps, what I was going to eat, the behaviors I could use. I was asked to go out like I was there by myself and I'd meet these other backpackers and they'd ask me to go out and I wouldn't go because I wouldn't know where we'd eat or what we'd be doing. I can't get that time back and now we can't travel and maybe we'll (laughs) never will again. (laughs) Like take me back to Marrakesh. (laughs) Um, So you've touched a little bit on the impact of uh, particularly sort of LGBT 
culture and that that pervasive kind of culture online. What do you think is damaging about that certain pocket of the internet or that certain pocket of, you know, our culture that is particularly sort of specific to your experience? What what impact has that had for you? Well, I mean, it's it's been a funny, weird journey online coming out at a time where uh, you could create community through queerness uh, online. But there's so many subsections of the queer community online. And I, when I first came out, I didn't understand that there is the queer world and the gay, I'm doing air quotes here for listeners, the yeah. gay world, the homonormative world where you've come out, uh, now everything's fine. Um, you've come out and you're presented with, uh, this is the life that you should lead. This is the life that everyone leads online where, uh, you have a 16 pack, you and your partner live in Surrey Hills, pay 500 a week each, have a French bulldog. It's, it's this insane <laughs> this irony. So accurate, Patrick. You should, so write, you should do a PhD on this. Like that was just like, Someone pay me to write it. That. It's true. It's so true. It's half uh, my social and, circle, truly. It's, yeah, it's a lot. It's a it's, lot. The insane irony is that, you know, when you come out, uh, well, not just when you come out, but as a queer person, you have the ability to like free yourself. You have the option to free yourself from the shackles of uh, what society wants from you. You know, you, you don't have to be in the closet and uh, marry someone you don't want to marry and live this fake life but then you are presented with this other thing that's just another box to be squished into uh, and so much of that revolves around bodies and that's why it's really problematic when this stuff is online and when people mix their like fitness regimes and their often disordered eating online uh and present that as part of this lifestyle and normalize that as part of the lifestyle. If you want entry into this club, if you want to be part of the Dalo on the scene, and it's in every city in the world, it's in every Instagram feed in the gay universe, then you need to do these things with your lifestyle and your diet. This is part of, uh, that's like cost of entry. That's one of the many costs of entry. Um, not the least of which is literal money, but, uh, then on the flip side of this, there's so much uh, incredible and political and hilarious queerness on the internet that uh, not only takes the piss out of that type of lifestyle, but provides you with the, the community to figure out your own way to be, figure out your own like worldviews and interests and uh, stuff in the community and outside of it. And just like, yeah, celebrate queerness, not, not going to F45 18 mm-hmm. times a week. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I've often, cause I've a number of my friends are gay and that description that you gave, I was just like, yep, 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 yep. <laughs> tick, 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 tick. Because it is a, it is something given what I do for a living that when I hear those kinds of conversations about particularly pre Mardi Gras, 
and the anxiety oh, pre-Mardi Gras and their plans pre-Mardi Gras around food. And I'm just like, you guys, you guys, you guys, <laughs> no, 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 you don't have to do this. Insane. This is this is what I did because they, they think what I do is great and they're like, oh, that you help. And I'm like, yes, people like what you're talking about. Like that's what they're talking about. It yeah. might not be pervasive every day, you know, three, six, five, but to have that level of anxiety and to, you know, punish yourself as much as I see my friends, you know, punishing themselves. I'm like, this is, this guys, this is what I do for a living is deal with the kind of stuff that you're doing pre Mardi Gras. It really causes me concern because it is so normalized. It's like they can't see yeah. the woods for the trees. Well, of course. And everyone else is doing it. Everyone else in the neighborhood is talking about it. Everyone is uh, only drinking vodka sodas and no one's actually eating at the pub while they're all talking about their Mardi Gras plans because they're adhering to their regime shredding for Mardi Gras and what should be a uh, beautiful celebration of community um, can and be... Diversity. A, and diversity. It can be mm. such a stressful time for so many people and lead to more complex and clinical eating disorders because have been held to this standard that's just insane every year and it keeps on occurring and uh i mean i'm sure that there are people who've been going to mardi gras for the last 40 years uh who've been keeping that up and the body changes we age like at to what extremes people must go to throughout their lives to attend this event in uh uh like match perfect form it it makes me it makes me both really quite sad and also relieved to to uh, just release that from my own thinking. And I had a great Mardi Gras this year. So. Fantastic. And I did not care about my body. Brilliant. Uh, <laughs> that's what we want to hear. Because again, it's having to go out and, and live your life and prove to yourself that because this is what I had to do as my body changed through recovery. And as I started to accept, like, this is, this is what my body is going to be for now. Time and gravity are going to change it all over again <laughs> repeatedly until, you know, I'm not here anymore. Mm. But it is the acceptance that, or the, the willingness to go out and live your life and look for the evidence which backs up that healthy part of you, which says, I am fine. I am fine exactly as I am. People still laugh at my jokes. My friends still invite me places. I am still loved. I, I still, you know, can be kind and good to myself, you know, regardless of where my head is about my body. Mm. It's being willing to go out and live life to prove to yourself all your deep fears are not going to come true. And even if some of them do, that you're actually more capable of navigating that and coping with that and help seeking and, you know, comforting yourself around that, then you probably give yourself credit for. Yeah, I think anyone who's worked through an eating disorder, disordered eating, body image issues is inherently a resilient person. If they've come to that, decided to work on that, decided to share that with other people, decided to just to make, make the decision and say today is the day this stops is resilient. And if you can do that, you can, you can do anything like you're good. The, yeah. the, the problems of the world and life and social life and dating life, blah, blah, blah. If, if I've uh, deprogrammed from that cult, I, I can do just about anything. Absolutely. It's uh, something I'm so grateful for, not something I would wish on anyone. Mm. And I was fortunate to get out of it. I'm very grateful for it because it taught me if you want something, you've got to work every day for it and you've got to do the thing. You've got, you can't just think and contemplate and talk. You've got to do the damn thing. And that's what recovery is. 
you contemplate, you think, you talk about it, and then you pick up the fork when your head is screaming at you not to. Mm-hmm. You don't engage in the behavior when your body's telling you you're going to die if you don't. And to do that over and over again and to prove to yourself that you can put up with the awful feelings that can come with means that setting up a business or, you know, taking a chance on somebody and falling in love, like all that big, scary life stuff that requires the bravery and the big step to do it. Like, God, if you could do this, everything else is a cakewalk. Yes. A right? cakewalk and eat some cake on the walk. That's you know? right. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully that is why it is called a cakewalk because there should be some kind of cake yeah, involved. Cake at the end, at least. That's right. Yeah. That's what they should call Mardi Gras. Cakewalk. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to force feed you all cake. <laughs> I think the cakewalk would be, well, yeah, I don't know. I'm so old, but teenagers keep on calling each other's butts cake. Are you aware of this? This No, I'm 33. I know lingo about seven months after it's already passed. Have you seen cake emojis? Or, I mean, at the time of recording, it's Oscars Day, and I've already seen Instagram stories about certain celebrity, male celebrities' cakes. That's what they're talking about. They're talking about people's booties. I'm glad I'm you told me that. Break that news to you. <laughs> I do love a random emoji, and maybe I've been sending people emojis of cakes recently, and maybe it's highly inappropriate. Uh, hopefully, I haven't done that with any of my clients, but that's that's <laughs> important. I know that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, where would you say that you are now, Patrick, in terms of your recovery journey? We love the word journey around here. I know that you have christened yourself with a fabulous nickname that I love. Uh, Chubby King. Chubby King. I think that kind of gives us some insight into where your process is sitting at the moment. But what is it, what does it look like for you right now? What's, what's happening in your recovery currently? Yeah, I guess I'm still every day, uh, at least most days working on body acceptance. Um, I think that's probably going to be a lifelong pursuit, which isn't daunting. That's, if, if anything, it's just like, um, I don't know. It's just like maintenance. It's just, just like another life admin thing that I have to do. Um, and I know that the time that I put into self-love and body acceptance and uh, mindfulness things pays off in dividends. Um, certainly more so than stuff I've been doing in the last 10 or 20 years. Um, so for me, I mean, I don't really have a structured daily practice around it. I, uh, am, always working on intercepting thoughts, well, not even intercepting, but um, observing thoughts that arise and acknowledging them as purely thoughts and being like, oh, that's interesting. Um, crazy Patrick circa 2015, he's in the house today. That's interesting. Well, you can keep on walking, baby. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that sort of awareness uh, has really helped a lot. And I think as, as soon as there was some sort of framework for me to understand what was going on in my head and to, um, you know, through psychologists and through support from friends, being able to just understand that there are, there are ways to uh, alleviate preoccupation and obsession with certain habits and patterns of behavior and patterns of thinking yeah, I'm, and I'm, I am a mindfulness queen. Um, I, I do my mindfulness exercises. I'm also like becoming increasingly nerdy about neuroscience and you know understanding neuroplasticity. Um, I can kind of actually say the word, but now I can uh, work on my neuroplasticity and know that th- these things 
aren't set in stone that you can change the way your brain works and your response to stressful and triggering situations. And that I think, I think for me, maybe when I first started doing things like um, meditating and uh, other mindfulness exercises, there's a bit of cringe um, because I certainly used to be a very cynical person um, and maybe anything that even remotely brushed against the word spirituality, I'd be like, Ugh. yeah, I mean, that's just what you think when you're either not, not yet ready or not brave enough or haven't built yourself up to actually try those things. And then when you realize they work, you're like, okay, yeah, that checks out. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's a, it can be a reflection of rigid thinking, right? Mm. I was also a pretty cynical pretty black and white thinking kind of person. I'm literally, this. my laptop is propped on a book called The Brain That Changes Itself, which my dad bought when I was about 16. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what is this about dad? And he's he was not wrong. He was not wrong. Exactly what I ended up doing for a living. Um, but it's being able to be open. And I think that recovery breaks you open in so many ways in terms of, you know, you think in this very narrow way, you behave in this very narrow way, you speak to yourself in a very narrow way. And, and the beginning of recovery is really just like broadening that spectrum and not having mm. to do anything with it, but just going, hang on, I don't talk to other people like that. I don't put those parameters on anyone else. And even that just opens up this, you know, possibility for how you could potentially speak to yourself or think about yourself. And it can be scary to make that leap because you've got to then unpack all the core beliefs, which have led to you speaking to yourself as poorly as you can and treating mm -hmm. yourself as poorly as you can. And that's a process and, you know, everyone has to do it in their own time at their own pace, but it is such a worthwhile uh, path to go down. Yeah. And I really, uh, really, it speaks to me when you talk about unpacking your core beliefs and that's, that's such a, a big part of recovery. Um, having, having to reckon with these, these things and decide what you believe in. Like the only things you have control over in your life, uh, in my unprofessional opinion, uh, your actions and your values and actions so often stem from your values. And you, it is, it is quite a lot of work to figure out what you actually value in life. And I mean, I would hope a lot of people would say their values include empathy and compassion. And when you start to realize you haven't been shown yourself those things. And as you say, would you say that thing you say to yourself to another person when you actually have to confront that it can be really exhausting and hard and maybe your reaction is run away or roll your eyes at yourself but unpacking those core beliefs and finding your values working on them and really deciding to live by them is what life is all about i think yeah and it's recovery is a bit of a crash course into into all of that stuff right yeah um, so Patrick, thank you so much for sharing so much with us, not just your experience, but just a nugget of wisdom a minute. Um, <laughs> and for, yeah, just all the work that you're doing and, and being so brave in sharing your experience as you're going through it. I know it's not easy. It's not easy to do when you're, you know, doing it privately. It's certainly not necessarily an easy thing to do with eyes on you doing it, but it's a very selfless thing. And, and I have no doubt it's helping and going to help a lot of people. Well, right back at you. And I'm so glad that we're working on this campaign together. I don't know if we can speak about this top secret campaign. <laughs> keep your eyes peeled for the butterfly 
in May. Keep <laughs> your eyes on our social media feeds. I wonder what it's going to be about. Not, not, not that we've spoken about body image for 90% of this podcast. <laughs> what could it possibly be about? <laughs> North Korea? I don't know. <laughs> Please don't listen to this butterfly. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you so much. I, I really admire your work and how articulate you are about this while remaining so accessible and fun. You know, recovery isn't necessarily a fun thing, um, but if you don't take yourself too seriously, I mean, that's one of my values. Mm-hmm. One of my values, not taking myself too seriously, you can go into this and uh you can undergo recovery you can engage in recovery in a way that's not always um doom and gloom yeah there is a lot of joy in getting your life back there is a lot of joy in recovery just you have to go looking for it yeah yeah and i think you are you are an exceptional example of that and keeping things light and keeping things funny so where can people come and find you where can we come and catch shots of the infamous billboard uh, you'll find the infamous billboard uh, on my Instagram page at the Pat Boyle B O Y L E. That's the first time I've ever plugged myself. Fantastic, <laughs> and no underscores or anything. You got no, the full straight up the handle. The only Pat Boyle. It's actually a very common name, but uh, you find me there. I'm currently working on a uh, non-fiction book about body image and body dissatisfaction. Um, talking to experts as well as the lay person like myself. Um, so perhaps if you want to uh, recommend someone I should speak to or share your lived experience, um, you can find me at the Pet Boyle. I don't have any other social media. I can't handle anymore. Keep it simple. Just on the gram, which is where all the, all the bullshit stems from. So I may as well use it to try and fix a little bit. Throw a little bit of a little drop of common sense into a sea of bullshit as you say precisely yes <laughs> so all of your contact stuff being that instagram handle will be in the show notes uh so people can come and find you there but i have no doubt that we'll be hearing from you and seeing a lot more from you in the months and years to come in this space yeah hit me up anytime wonderful thanks pat thanks thanks for speaking to me